friends, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and for this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Quantrilla Ard. Quantrilla was a guest this past February for the series we did on Black History Month, where we focused on Black motherhood. But she's back for a one-on-one conversation to share more of her story, passion, and calling. Quantrilla is a passionate creative at heart. She's answered the call to encourage women in all stages of life and the various backgrounds through empathy, transparency, and love. Dr. Quantrilla is a faith-based personal and spiritual development writer, dynamic speaker, and people connector who believes in the power of collective strength, community, and fellowship. She recently graduated from Walden University with a PhD in health psychology, and she's an advocate for social justice with a focus on black maternal and infant health and mortality. In this episode, Dr. Quantrilla shares her story of her first pregnancy that nearly resulted in her death, and then propelled her journey forward to be an advocate for black women's maternal health. She also talks about her view on the recent Roe versus Wade decision as a black woman, a Christian woman, and an advocate for women's health. Before we jump into this conversation, I want to say I know that abortion is a very sensitive and polarizing topic for many. I myself have spent most of my life firmly planted in the pro-life camp, thinking that as a Christian woman that was the only space to land. However, through the last couple of years of listening to more stories, learning more data, I've realized this issue is not as black and white as I once thought it to be. Abortion is a complicated topic and full of more nuance than I ever imagined. And as I say in this conversation, there's a difference between believing abortion is wrong and thinking it should be criminalized by our government. So with that, listen in to my conversation with Dr. Quantrilla Ard. Dr. Quantrilla Ard, welcome back to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. So glad to be here. Well, I am just really thrilled to have you here. You were a regular guest in February when we recorded for Black History Month and talked about the history of the Black womb and Black motherhood. And I knew then that I wanted to have you back on just to talk to you. And I was kind of waiting for the right timing. I don't always, well, I never plan my podcast months in advance. I think I kind of go with that inner, that inner voice of saying when's the right time that's going to work. Cause I know we've talked in the past of having, having you on, but this just felt like a really good time to talk about your work, what you do and all of that. So Dr. Quantrilla, tell us, don't get into your story, but just tell us <laughs> where you are in the world, what your day-to-day life looks like. Some of just basic things about you. Absolutely. Um, so like Andrew said, I am Dr. Quantrilla Ard, and I am in the Atlanta area with my husband and my three little people. Um, I do a lot of things and I'm excited to do all of those things. I am a literary agent. I am a mom, a homeschooling mom. So I homeschool my kids. I am also a an advocate and um, a patient family partner who advocates for black and brown mamas, especially when it comes to maternal mortality and morbidity and also infant mortality as well. So I got my PhD in health psychology and I specifically focus on research that will help to eliminate maternal mortality for black and brown women and their babies. 
And that to me is just fascinating. And I'm guessing I kind of know why you got into that field. Did you always know you wanted into that field or was it your own life experiences that, that got you there? So it was a little bit of both. Actually, I think I always knew I wanted to work with black women and really examine our lives from the inside out. You know, I, I, I knew that there was a lot of research that didn't really focus on uh, the lives and the intersectionality of black women. And so once I had my own experience with negative birth outcomes, that kind of really shaped how I just kind of, you know, stuck my flag there. And I was like, okay, this is the hill that I'm going to die on. So I had dabbled a little bit uh, back in my master's program, you know, just looking at breastfeeding and how that influences the health of black babies um, in black communities. But then, like I said, I had my own experience and I was like, hold up, what's going on here? So that really cemented in my mind that this was the place that I needed to be to really give voice to other black mamas out here, you know, trying to just survive. And that's what I want to dive deeper in today to talk about, because I think so often as white women, but even black women don't realize just the huge disparities in pregnancy, breastfeeding, all getting pregnant, birth control, all the things with the black and brown communities. And we will dive into that a little bit more with your expertise. Often in this podcast, I take people back to their childhood a little bit to share what they want. And I'm kind of like, do I do that with you? Because we're talking about a whole other thing, but I feel like it's important to just talk about where you want to talk, where you want to start with like your ancestors, your parents, your childhood, all of those things just to pay. I mean, I think it's really important just to pay, to pay some tribute to our origin stories. So do you want to share a little bit of, of yours? Absolutely. And it's so funny that you ask because so much of who I am mm-hmm. as a black woman and, um, the, the things that I choose to do as far as showing up professionally and personally and as a woman of faith really are connected to my upbringing. And I'm an only child and um, I'm a mama's girl. And well, I'm a daddy's girl too, but more so a mama's girl because I was an only child and my mother really took a lot of time to pour into me because I was an only child. And um, I learned a lot about womanhood and faith and family and service and help uh, from her. And so that really shaped who I am today. And so um, the most devastating experience is to lose someone you love. And for me, that was my mother. You know, I, I lost her. I I would say not necessarily at a young age, but I still wasn't ready. So I had just graduated from college. Mm. I was 22, you know, on the brink, like teetering on the brink of adulthood, you know, had just gotten, you know, the, the, this great accolades, the, you know, this great accomplishment I had made. And within a month I was burying my mom. So Mm. it was just a transition that I kind of just, I I mean, I wasn't ready for. My mother had a terminal illness. um, So I think in my head, I knew at some point it would happen. But my heart was like, no, girl, we're going to 
keep hoping until the very last minute. Yeah. Um, and so that, that loss has really marked almost my complete journey um, after losing her. And so mm-hmm. it has put me in a position where I have always wanted to help heal people, right? So one of the things that I recognize that some of the trauma that you have, either you're going to repeat the trauma or you're going to try to help in that same area, right? That's that's just something that I've observed. I mean, there's probably no, you know, research or whatever around that. But I, I would agree though, just with all the stories I've heard and seen. Yeah, I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like that, that loss and that ache has really propelled me to find out what ways I can help improve the quality of life for black women. And so that was kind of the, the thing that started me on my journey. And I grew up in a community of black women, a a black woman, a community of black women who breastfed, who took care of their children and who worked and who had goals and dreams and aspirations. And so as I continued on my journey, I knew that I wanted to continue that same tradition um, Mm -hmm. as I grew up, as I became an adult as well. And so I ended up um, going back to school a couple more times. Like I said, I I got my master's degree and, you know, tried to get as far as I could and and got this PhD. So um, a lot of that I pay homage to what my mother instilled in me and what what that that community of women instilled in me. So it's definitely so proud of you and she sees it. And I want to say that is young to lose your mom. I know you just said you weren't young, but that is young. I mean, I lost my dad two years ago at 45 and I felt like I was too young. I think we're always too young to lose a parent. I agree. I agree. I mean, I just, it, it, like I said, it's just something that I still hold with me Mm -hmm. uh, to this day. So yeah. And I was looking at your website and we'll let reader or listeners know at the end where to find you on that. But some of the consulting services you offer are with like helping women through grief and loss. And that, that part of your story, you have carried through, like you said, so many parts of that you've carried through to your life's work and mission. So fast forward and you fast forward a lot, you get married, you have your own, you know, you want to have your own children. I'm assuming when you go into that, do you know, I don't know how far you were in your education. So do you know at that time, how being pregnant affects black women differently? Do you know the higher infant mortality rates? Do you know all of this? No, I did not know any of it. And it's so interesting to me that, um, as I studied public health and as I studied um, just kind of how things were for black women, that those things didn't quite come up. Um, and so this is, you know, gosh, we're rewinding at this point, probably 15 plus years. So if you think about it, the literature and the statistics and the knowledge that we have now around um, maternal mortality, especially for minority groups, that was not an interest 15, 20 years ago at all. Right. And so the the small amount of literature and, and research that did exist, it wasn't really tailored to women of color. It wasn't really specifically geared to women of color. Um, it, it was more of just a general gathering of data and no one was really interested in 
figuring out, well, is there, is there an issue here? Is there a problem here? Right. Um, and so, you know, back then it was, it was not really popular to talk about, Hey, <laughs> these mamas and these babies are dying. It was not, and I don't want to say popular, but it wasn't a topic of interest, right? There, right. there wasn't, there weren't really centers of learning um, that were created to address those issues. And so, and I know what you're saying with popular. And also I think had it, someone cared enough to get it published and out there, it would have likely been, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking it would have likely just been blamed on black women and families and not blamed on the structures and the systemic racism of why these numbers are what they are and the unequal access to healthcare and all the things. So it wouldn't have even looked like like truth of why, why those numbers were what they were. Yeah. So you get pregnant and I don't know the specifics of this, of your, I know what you shared in our last interview, but I don't know, was this your first child that you yeah. experienced the complications? Okay. So you're deaf, you're young, new mom. How old were you then? I was, um, let's see, 13. So I was 29. So I had okay. about to turn 30 um, I think I turned 30 after my son was born, but yeah, I'm, you know, I'm still in my twenties, you know, mm-hmm. you're not considered quote high risk cause you're older or whatever, but you are high risk cause you're a black woman, but you're not, you didn't know that. Correct. And so I find that out after the fact, but you know, um, it, it was, you know, I'm, I'm expecting to have a normal delivery. I'm expecting to do what our bodies do, you know, because again, my frame of reference was, you know, healthy babies, healthy mamas. I had not even had this type of discussion with my family members around, you know, pregnancy and birth. We didn't have those conversations. Like I just assumed everything would be okay. I'd have this healthy baby, you know, I'd, I'd breastfeed, I'd nurse, and that's what we did. But again, that is, it's, it's, when you look at it, it's because we just didn't know the information, right? We had no idea we were at higher risk because of not necessarily our skin color, but because of the institutional and systemic racism in which we had to birth children. And so when it, when it was my turn, you know, again, went into it kind of just expecting regular standard care, right? And it just did not turn out that way. And I presented with preeclampsia with my first son and there was a lack of communication. There was a lack of compassion. The things that I wish for black and brown mamas to have. And, and mind you, my situation probably wasn't the worst situation I've ever heard of on the scale of horror, you know, and obstetric violence. Uh, it was not the worst. And, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to compare, but just to give a little context to my situation, while it was not one of those situations where I would categorize it as something completely terrifying, it was definitely traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I just think of how many stories don't have a happy ending. And I'm putting happy in air quotes because it wasn't happy while it was, while right. it was happening. Right. Right. But what I mean by happy ending is that I survived, my son survived. There are vast numbers of stories where 
that is not the case. And so, so as you're going through it and preeclampsia, just one, can you just make sure listeners understand that? And then two, as you're going through it, get that diagnosis and how you're being treated. Do you just think, oh, I guess this is how it is. Or are you thinking like, okay, this is not right. Yeah. So just to, you know, to give you some terminology for, for preeclampsia, it is where your blood pressure is elevated above normal because of certain processes that happen during pregnancy. What I was told was, oh, your blood pressure is a little elevated. We're just going to watch you for a little bit. Now, what I know now is my blood pressure was off the charts. Oh. <laughs> but the issue is, right, so this, this blood pressure this extreme shift in blood pressure, it's related to some sort of process during pregnancy or after pregnancy, right? Because now we know that preeclampsia can also happen postnatally. And so what happens is if there's not some type of intervention, both the mother and the child can uh, die, right? And so obviously the mother can have seizures, which could lead to all types of uh, trauma. And then of course, if the mother is not well, right, there's no, there's no hospital environment for her child and the child can also die as well. Right. So in my case, uh, I was told that the only way to cure preeclampsia <laughs> was to deliver my baby. Well, the issue is the baby is not necessarily causing the preeclampsia, right? But there is some type of physiological connection um, for moms and babies with, with this blood pressure issue. So I ended up having a, an emergency C-section because they could not get my blood pressure down. But what happened was I, I was being induced and I requested an epidural because I just wasn't progressing fast enough. And so the epidural, one of the side effects of getting an epidural is lowering your blood pressure. And so for someone who has a high blood pressure issue, this kind of seems like, oh, her blood pressure is going down. However, the baby gets used to this high pressure environment, right? Because our bodies are completely amazing. And so the child gets used to this high pressure environment. So if you drop the blood pressure, now it causes stress to the baby. And so my son's heart rate dropped and they were like, oh my goodness, you know, emergency, emergency. <laughs> so um, they were like, we have to get your baby out right now. And so I'm not quite sure what happened. Um, I, I want to say that there was a combination of them seeing me as this frantic, out of control patient which I thought was a little unfair because, hey, this is my first child. Uh, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. No one's really telling me what's going on. And now you're making all these decisions and I have to sign all this paperwork and I have to agree to whatever's going on. Right. Because now you're telling me both my life and my baby's life is in danger. Right. So it was just, it was really just, I felt an unfair assessment <laughs> of what For was sure. For sure. And so they, you know, they wheel me into this operating room. You know, I literally have no idea what's mm. going on. And I keep telling them, hey, I feel something. I feel something. I feel something. They're like, oh, yeah, it's just pressure. It's just pressure. Well, how can it be pressure when you actually haven't done the C-section yet? And I'm right. telling you, I feel pain. This doesn't feel good. Something's right. Like and you have an epidural, so you know you should not be feeling what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. They, they cut me open, and... I felt it. I let out a blood pressure, oh. and my poor husband 
he was told that he was going to be able to come in and just kind of be my support person. Mm -hmm. But things started happening so fast and then they cut me open and my husband never made it into the operating Mm -hmm. room. And then once they realized that maybe I wasn't just being this crazy black woman that I actually could feel pain, they knocked me out. So it was, it was hot mess. It was just a hot mess. Well, one of the things I want you to repeat that you said in our interview in February was about doctors or pre-med students not even believing that black women feel pain at the same level. So, so there is a bias when it comes to, uh, people of color, especially women of color and pain tolerance and pain threshold. There is this pervasive thought that black women do not feel pain on the same level as everyone else. I don't understand it. It Obviously it makes no sense, right? Because we all have the same pain receptors. I mean, outside of there being some type of issue where you don't feel pain, but who's actually asking people, Hey, do you feel this? Do you feel this? Do you feel this? But there is this pervasive thought in medicine that the black body does not feel pain and that we're just these brute animals who can be used for experimentation and all kinds of foolishness without there being some feeling in that. I mean, that was the groundwork. We talked a little bit about that before, but that was the groundwork laid with early gynecology, what they, when they did that on what they did on enslaved women. And that was what they said, Oh, they don't even feel the pain. I mean, so it's like that has reverberated through the medical field still today as seen in your experience where you told them. And so at one point I was like, well, let me stop asking questions. You know, well, let me stop saying anything because I had heard little things that they were saying, oh, she's just really sensitive or, you know, oh, and so I stopped, I stopped advocating for myself. I stopped asking questions because I didn't want to be viewed as a difficult patient. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to be viewed as just some random you know, crazy person. And, you know, and these, again, are all stereotypes that black women get this bad rap for being angry and difficult and obstinate. And I didn't want those stereotypes to be forced upon me when I'm in this very vulnerable position right. and I need these people to save my life and to save my yes. health. Yes. Yeah. And hence why we say, listen to black women because you're not listened to and time and time again, that same story repeats. And I'm so sorry. That is your experience, especially in a life or death situation. So they completely knock you out. Yeah. So they knock me out. So I don't, I don't know anything. The doctor peeks over the curtain. He's like, I'm so sorry. We have to get your baby out. And, and at that point to me, that meant, okay, I'm, I'm finally acknowledging that you're in pain, right. but this is what we got to do. So I wake up and I'm assuming that my child is okay. Cause again, they knock me completely out at this point. <laughs> and so my husband's there, he's like, Hey, you know, the baby's fine. You know, he's in the NICU. He's, you know, he's small and you know, but he's okay. And so I'm still in shock. I'm in complete mm. shock. And I I just kind of go through this almost like zombie-like state because I just, I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on. My body has been through so much trauma. Mm -hmm. So now after the surgery, my body starts to swell. They're trying to get my blood pressure down. Like they could not get my blood pressure down. So now I'm 
in my head, I'm like, okay, the baby's here. I need to feed him. But I'm still on the medicine that they give pregnant mamas to help with preeclampsia. It's called uh, it's called a magnesium. I can't remember the the last part of it, but it's some type of magnesium compound, right? And so what happens is it, it's a muscle relaxant so that you don't have seizures. And while you're on this medication, um, you are considered a fall risk. You can't hold your baby, right? Because again, it's a muscle relaxant. So you're, you're, you know, you're stuck in your bed, you know, you have a catheter, you can't go to the bathroom. You know, these are, these are things that are kind of like, okay, non-negotiables. You can't hold your baby. And so again, all this trauma has happened and I, it's finally dawning on me, like waking up from a dream. And so I'm like, where's my baby? I want to hold my baby. Can't hold my baby. I'm like, okay, I want to feed my baby. Can't feed my baby. And so I was again, re-traumatized because I'm like, oh my goodness, I've been through this horrifying experience and now I can't even hold my baby. I can't visit my baby. And so for the next 48 hours, I still didn't see my baby. They were just trying to desperately get my blood pressure down. And I just, at some point I was like, okay, look, I need to see my child. I need to make sure my child's okay. But it was just, it was such a traumatizing experience. And and literally life or death for you. I mean, when your blood pressure is up that high for so long, so not only the childbirth, but then that situation was life or death. And your situation also is not completely rare. Like you said earlier that I don't want to say pales and compared to what some Mm -hmm. other black women, a lot of other black women have had to go through. It's not even as bad. And what you went through was horrific. What are the statistics you've shared them before, but like mortality rates for black women as compared to white women or women or women of color compared to white women? Yeah. So maternal mortality right now for black women is three to four times more likely for them to die of pregnancy related complications compared to white women. And uh, infant mortality is not far behind. Um, When we look at statistics that look at college-educated Black women, which, you know, like we talked about the research before, research used to say, hey, if you're more educated, if you have a good job, if you get good income, have good insurance, these are protective factors. These will help you have a better quality of life. But then what we were finding was, regardless of education, Black women's babies were still dying. Um, and, and comparing, you know, to white women, a college educated black woman, her baby was two and a half times more likely to die in their first year of life compared to a white woman that did not even have a high school diploma. So right there, that completely shatters right. the, the thought that if you have more education, you have a better chance of having these, you know, good birth outcomes. We're like, no, absolutely not. This right. is not the same thing. So why, what is that then contributed to? Because if we think of like, oh, it's only because black women don't have equal access to healthcare, that kind of messes up that too. I mean, although that's a true statement, it's not entirely it. So why is the disparity there with the death rates with the babies? It really all boils down to racism, right? Because as a researcher, you know, we're, we're trying to understand what are these uh, factors that are driving this particular issue. And so, you know, there's this term that we call, uh, determinants of health, right? Social determinants of health. And, and one of the, the major drivers of social determinants of health is racism. 
And so what, what, what used to be said was, oh, if you're black, you're at higher risk, right? And, and it really, what was happening was the, the narration of that story was the onus is being put on being black. But we don't choose that. We don't. Mm-hmm. We don't sign up to be black, right? It is that is just a, a factor of being born in a black family. So it can't be the fact that I am black that puts me at higher risk. It is the function of me showing up as a black person mm-hmm. in America that is the determining factor of my quality of life. And when I realized that working on my dissertation and uh, having conversations with other experts in the field, it blew my mind because it really helps me to narrow down the scope of it's not me being black that is the issue. It is the experience I have as a black person in America that is the issue. So we're we're shifting the blame, right? Because we can't blame you. I can't say, oh, because you're black, you have a higher risk factor. Right, right. No, it's the function of you existing as a black person, yes. as a minority yes. in a systemically, institutionally racist environment that is yes. this. That is yes. This. Which is so important. And I don't think it's what we connect the dots with enough because I would not have, I was just reading some today, which goes right along with what you said. Black women produce about 15% more cortisol, a stress hormone than white women. And again, not because you're black, but because you have to show up black in this United States of systemic racism, where as a black woman, you are facing more trauma, more chronic stress, more environmental stress. So all of that contributes to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, it does not matter if you have a PhD. Right. It does not matter if you are on Medicaid or Medicare or have private insurance. It does not matter because these biases and, and the structural, the, the way it's embedded in the system is the problem. So right. the issue is, what do we do? We, we have to change the system. That's right. And that has become part of your passion and your experience. And then learning this led you down this road of realizing all of this and how deeply embedded it is. And your passion now is for supporting black moms, black babies, and trying to increase awareness and lower these numbers of infant and black mom mortality rates. So now we're going to, we're going to shift, but I feel like it's all connected. (laughs) We're going to shift into the harder topic of how this relates to abortion and the banning of Roe versus Wade and your perspective. And that's why I'm just so really grateful for your voice in this, because you have the perspective of a deeply devoted Christian woman combined with someone who has a doctorate in this field of infant mortality, mother mortality, protecting black women, all of that. And honestly, I didn't know what your view would be when I heard you on the Shay show. That's why I was like, Oh, cause I, as someone who's been pro-life for most of her life, me because of being raised in the Christian environment, I just am like, that's how you have to be. And I know you're a woman of faith. And so I was, felt like I could breathe after hearing you share, like you can still be a woman of faith and be pro-choice. So before we talk into that, I want to start first with going along with the statistics. 
why abortion, why this overturn of Roe versus Wade disproportionately is going to affect black women. Because I think we hear that, but I don't know if everybody always gets the why behind that. So when you first heard about the overturn of Roe versus Wade, as a black woman, as a black Christian woman, as someone that is in your field, what what did you feel and think? Oh, and you know, I, I'm so grateful to be able to have these conversations. I typically don't, I don't typically engage in these conversations on social media because it's so easy to miss the intention and the tone and stuff when you're typing and words. I like to have conversations because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. easy for me to, or easier, I should say, for me to meet you here and see your heart and hear your story and have dialogue that way. Yeah. So I appreciate this opportunity. So I, I must admit, when I heard that it had been overturned, I was terrified. That was my initial reaction was fear. And I don't like that that was my initial reaction because a lot of times when people react out of fear, it's not necessarily a good reaction, which is why I specifically chose not to speak on it because I was still very much in a, in a, in a fear space. And the fear eventually kind of evolved into disappointment. And the disappointment really comes from a lack of care and compassion for each other. And I feel like that decision was rooted in a lack of care and compassion for one another. Mm -hmm. And I know that's hard, maybe hard to hear because many Christians who are pro-life feel like this ban is compassionate. It is caring for the unborn. And while the intent of making sure that lives are not unduly just carelessly taken. I understand that desire to help. Mm-hmm. However, someone asked me what my favorite word is. However is my favorite <laughs> word. This particular issue involves way too much nuance. It involves, it, it's too convoluted to make an absolute because there are so many shades of gray in this particular issue. And when we seek to eliminate, and I, and I mean that, when we seek to eliminate someone's individual choice to make decisions that affect them and their families, their bodies, their autonomy, their psychology, their emotion, their spirituality, when we seek to eliminate that choice, we put ourselves in the place of God. Yes. Now, I cannot speak for anyone else. That is my personal uh, opinion, and that is my personal belief, that we cannot mandate people's choices. It is not... It it is not gospel-centered. The gospel is a freeing gospel. The gospel is choice. It It is having the freedom to say, here is life, I choose life, right? Or here is death, I choose death. The point is we get to choose. Right, right. So this particular issue is so, like I said, it's so nuanced 
There's so many parts to it that it's just, I don't, I don't understand how you can just make a decision to say absolutely not in no cases, in no way, in no shape, in no fashion, is this okay? Right. So now here's, you know, here's the murky part, right? We know that there are people who will take advantage of this choice. Again, going back to the gospel, we were created. God knew that we were going to make a choice, right? We were either going to serve him or not serve him, right? But he allowed us the choice anyway, right? So again, there may be people who take advantage of, you know, having the choice to have an abortion. And here's the thing. It is their right. It is their privilege to choose. We cannot tell people we believe in a God that gives us choices and then champion a system that doesn't give us choices. Right. That's right. But yet here we are. Here we are. And I want to differentiate too with my listeners. I, I would, I don't want to speak for you, but I would probably think that you're like me, that you don't like abortion. We don't want that, but we also don't think that it should be criminalized. That's Mm -hmm. when the whole difference is that a woman should have no say or choice. We're not saying yes, everybody just get an abortion. And I don't think most pro-choice people are like, and that's when my eyes started to become open when I was spent again, most of my life being pro-life. It's only the last two years that I'm like, wait a second, there is so much nuance and gray areas here and more than I ever was taught or considered. Mm-hmm. And so that's what starts to open your eyes, not when you even look at scripture, but also the statistics of how it disproportionately affects black and brown bodies. So can you talk a little bit about that? When we say that, mm-hmm. what, what does that mean? Why does, why does it disproportionately affect black and brown women? One of the things, have you read this book, killing the black body? It It might be too much. It's a lot of trauma, but I'm guessing, you know, a lot of it, but I was reading it this week. And it says one of the things that talks about the history, obviously of controlling the black womb in this country from the very beginning with making enslaved women, the breeders to then the eugenics movement, all of it. Our country has a history of controlling black women, especially their wombs. But one of the things it says is half of half of the maternity related deaths among black women in New York city in the 1960s, you know, before abortion became legal were attributed to illegal abortions. Black women were less likely than white women to be able to afford a safe legal abortion and generally deny legal therapeutic therapeutic abortions performed in the hospitals. And that's what, this is a racist ruling. If you ask me, maybe that's going too far. I don't know. But when you look at numbers like that. Yeah. I mean, what else, what else can you say? Um, Mm -hmm. and, And when we think about how the current health system works for black and brown people, right? This is just another issue that will make those numbers grow even larger. Mm -hmm. Um, When you think about issues of access, right? And you think about issues of, um, you know, redlining and and resources, right? So one of the, the biggest arguments I hear is that, oh, well, you know, isn't there a way for them to make a different decision? Well, 
when you are steeped in an environment where access and resources are not available to you, when you are like put into a corner and you feel like you have no other choice, when you are stripped of your humanity, when you are considering if there is even going to be a quality of life for this child, these are not easy decisions to make. And so when I see the research and when I see the literature that every black and brown female, you know, woman that's born into this country is born at a systemic disadvantage, like the, the picture, the overall picture is staggering because what's happening is black and brown women are already being treated poorly on just healthcare in general. Right. And so now you have an issue where, again, people who feel like they don't have answers, people who feel like they don't have resources, they don't have choices, again, are now we're going to see those numbers ticking up again Mm -hmm. because it's like, okay, well, I, I will rather risk this than to have this other outcome. And if you've never been in that situation, if you've never known anybody in that situation, if you've never been a product of a family with generations of having to make these type of choices, it's hard for you to understand. It's hard for you to conceptualize that this choice would even be on the table for someone. That's right. But then let's talk about the medical side of it, right? I think of my story happening 13 years ago. Let's just say that I'm pregnant now and I end up having this situation with preeclampsia. What happens? Do I have the choice to choose between, you know, my life, my baby's life? Of course, we want to say both, right? But who gets to make that decision? I don't get to make that decision. That's right. And if something God awful happens, do I go to jail for that? Does my doctor go to jail for that? Mm -hmm. At what point? So if we're having this conversation of, who survives, who lives, who gets to to decide what is medically necessary. Like that becomes a gray area too. What is the percentage? Oh, well, there's a 40% chance that this child may die versus an 80% chance. Like who gets to make that decision? That's right. The water is so muddy, muddy there. And it's like some of the States have the clause if the mother's life is in danger, but who is, who's deciding how much or what degree of danger and doctors are not going to want to risk their whole career for that. I mean, it is just, it is, I don't think people are thinking about the entire gravity of this. It is an awful precedent because again, it is not black and white. It is not cut and dry. There's so much nuance that now we're talking about, you know, further trauma to the actual patient, to the person, to the birthing person. We're talking about now issues of malpractice for physicians, for pharmacists, right? Like we're throwing the baby and the bathwater out. Right, right. And so while I wouldn't necessarily call myself pro-choice or pro-life, what I'm saying is there's too much at Mm -hmm. stake for us to make a decision that criminalizes someone's right to choose. That's right. And that's the individual, that's the healthcare team, that's everyone involved. It's too important of a decision 
to just say, well, this is the stamp. It's one and done. That's right. But here we are. <laughs> you know, it, it's a decision that has been made and it is a slippery slope that honestly I feel will spill over into so many other areas of our lives that I'm concerned that the fallout of this issue wasn't really taken into account, especially as Christians. Our, our goal is not to um, bring harm. And I know that it, it, seems, it seems odd to say, well, how can you support someone's right to choose to have an abortion? Well, listen, the point is, if we can't put ourselves in God's place, we don't know the intentions. We don't know the situations and circumstances that surround people's choices. We don't know that. That's so right. how can we say, well, this, you can't make this choice, or you can make all these other choices, but you right. can't make this particular choice. That's right. You know, I shared with you a little bit about women sending me pictures of aborted fetuses and so they're horrific. And you don't think I've seen all of them when I was pro-life? But also, what are the stories behind those? I mean, that's what I now think about. Yeah. You know, what was the story with that mom that had to make the decision? Yeah. Was that mom's life in danger? Was that mom going to lose her job? Was that mom going to have to go back to an abusive boyfriend that was going to... Exactly. So it's like, I've seen the horrific pictures, okay? You have, they're mm -hmm. out there, but there's so much more even with that, we don't know the stories. We don't know the lives of these women, but we do know that black and brown bodies, their stories and what they're born into and the different levels of poverty or single moms or not having childcare or not having a liv livable wage are much higher in those communities. And it's going back to those systemic and institutional inequities that intentionally Okay, let's be real. These inequities intentionally marginalize black and brown people. Yes. So when this is already the norm to have a ruling that further marginalizes and further exacerbates negative, horrible outcomes. Right. I'm left to think that this can't be what God intended. And I believe that God has an ideal for his children, but I also believe that God knows that we are dust. Our frames are dust, right? right? We live in a very broken world, a very broken society. And sometimes the choices that we make are just the choices that we make to survive another That's day. Right. And I have to believe that the same God who created a perfect Adam and a perfect Eve and a perfect Eden could see down the centuries and millennia to know that today we wouldn't have access to those same perfect outcomes, right? right? And so God knows that we're doing, literally doing the best we can to survive. I have to believe that he is seeing our heart and seeing these hard decisions, seeing our choices, seeing our circumstances and situations. And he's not in heaven counting those things against us. I have to believe that God is bigger and, and wider and more expansive than this particular ruling. Like I have to believe that the choices we ultimately make are not going to destroy us because we have a God who is actively trying to save us. And so that's why I can sit 
in my opinion, of allowing people to make choices and decisions that work for them with the best light they have, with the, the, you know, with the horrible situations that could be behind their, their, their decisions. I don't know. Therefore, I cannot mandate that you choose according to what I think is right. Because what I think is right is colored by my own that's right. That's my own I've seen a lot of pastors put out the last couple of weeks and, and many pro-life Christians just talk about now we just have to come alongside. It's not pro baby or pro mom. We have to come alongside both. Like that's what this whole pro-life thing is coming alongside the mom and the baby. But I have to question, can you do that when a woman has no choice? What are your your thoughts on, on that Christian rhetoric of, yes, we can be pro-life because we just have to come alongside both. We don't have to choose. I, I think that it is a wonderful sentiment. I do. Mm-hmm. I think it is a wonderful sentiment. I'm just looking at history. Mm-hmm. When it was legal for people to make the choice to have an abortion, were you coming alongside them? Were you making home for them in your church pews? Were you inviting them into your homes to fellowship with your family? Were you serving in shelters where women who were in abusive relationships were bringing their babies to themselves? Like, I understand that there's this call to come alongside people, but it has to be more than lip service. It has to be something that is felt on an individual level. Because listen, let's be real the choice to have an abortion is an individual choice. And so that means we have to meet people on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. And if we can fix our mouths to say that someone should or shouldn't do this, then we also have to put our money where our mouth is. So we have to say, well, now we can. I mean, that's a good sentiment, but if you weren't always involved, if you didn't always have compassion toward women who were in these situations, who were more likely to make this decision, please help me understand how that's going to change now. That's my only concern. My only concern is now that the decision has gone in the favor of people who feel like this was such an abysmal um, choice. What were you doing prior? That's right. Because prior we know and correct me if I'm wrong on the stat, but almost 40% of abortion patients in 2019 were black women. And so why, and why didn't, why, why did that number get so high? The largest in all, all races, black women, what where were Christians then helping? We know why that number is so high. All the, the systems of racism that we've talked about. And it's like, now, now you're saying like, come alongside. So agree with you. It's a great sentiment, but it's problematic in some ways. Let's also consider the source, right? So the person that has the power, the person that has the influence gets to tell the story. So as a researcher, I'm always wary about statistics and numbers. So when you say, you know, 40%, right. For one group of people, Well, that makes me question, well, you know, who's telling the story? Yes, that's a good point. Because 40% may represent 40% of people going to legitimized 
mm-hmm. centers and clinics, right? Mm-hmm. We have no idea what the vast number of people right. going to other places is, right? right? And so there's this statistic or there, there's this narrative being created that Black women are the ones who are the largest consumers of right. abortion clinics. But let's be real. There are so many numbers out there that I'm wary of believing that Black women are the ones who are the largest consumers. Because it makes sense to use that as a statistic Mm -hmm. when you're trying to criminalize choices, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't want to criminalize choices that make the majority group look bad. Right. And so again, there's so many nuances here, right? Like, let's go back and talk about how the whole issue of legalization of abortion comes out of the fact that people did not want schools to be desegregated, Mm -hmm. right? So again, the history of this issue is rooted and entrenched in racism. So the fact that we're on the other side of the pendulum terrifies me because again, it's based on who has the money, who has the power. Those are the people that get to dictate the narrative and they get to make the rules. And so that is terrifying for me as a woman of faith and as a black woman, because when you start to trample on people's God-given right to choose, it's a slippery slope for everything else. It really is. Dr. Quantrilla, I could talk to you probably about this all morning and all the, the nuances and especially as a, but we have to wrap up. It's been an, it's been an hour. So I just, I appreciate your voice and your thoughtful. I mean, just all of it. You take such a loving approach to this and I appreciate it. I think I have a lot to learn from you. I just appreciate this conversation so very much. Tell my listeners where they can find you and connect with you. Because like I said, you do offer consulting services. You're also a literary agent. You're lots of things. So tell us where we can find you if they want to connect more with you. Yes, yes. And I just want to say, you know, even though you know, we're, we're talking about these big, heavy, tough issues. I, I truly believe that there is hope. And when we talk about like, how do we change things? I truly believe that individual relationships change. I mean, when we're talking about racism, when we're talking about the issue of abortion, um, all of these hard topics, I don't know if they're ever going to be resolved on the larger stage, but the hope is that if we have individual relationships with people, if we can find some common ground as we move and live and, and, and walk in this earth, then I think we're going to be okay. Again, systems may fail. And we do hope the system of racism